This program's about the impossible. There's a good chance that you believe in the impossible. In 1967, Dr. George Wald won the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine. Dr. Wald said, When it comes to the origin of life, there are two possibilities, creation or spontaneous generation. There is no third way. Spontaneous generation was disproved 100 years ago, but that led us to only one other conclusion, that of supernatural creation. We cannot accept that on philosophical grounds. Therefore, we choose to believe the impossible, that life arose spontaneously by chance. This Nobel Prize-winning scientist rejected the science that God had to be the creator of life, the only possible explanation for you. Me, I'm a Christian because I don't believe in the impossible. Stay tuned and let's explore the universe as it really is. I'm Paul and this is CYKIAE. George Floyd's death on 29 May 2020 sparked massive protests across America. The protests were used as an opportunity for those inclined to riot, and mixed in with the rioting was a lot of looting and shooting. Much, most of the media didn't distinguish between peaceful protests and the rioters and the looters. Donald Trump was president and there was political mileage in keeping the unrest going. When Trump wanted to use the military to stop the violence, the rioting and the looting, his agenda was the opposite of those people who wanted to exploit it for their advantage. Those people won the day. The rioting and the looting continued. Some brave, peaceful protesters still stuck their heads up and went out to protest, mostly during the day. The rioters and looters claimed the night. But there was a much bigger prize up for grabs, and that was most of the mainstream media. Billy Ocean tells us that when the going gets tough, the tough get going. James Bennett was the head opinion editor at the New York Times. The whole shitstorm over the Senator Tom Cotton story was his baby, and he had to step up, or not. He'd clearly made the right decision about publishing one opinion piece in favour of sending in the troops to three opinion pieces, including a Times editorial, against it. Hardly balanced coverage... But even one article arguing the other side's case showed unusual courage for this paper that had almost totally become the bitch for its young, woke journalists and staff. So the day after the Cotton Opinion piece had been published for June 2020 and the woke staff at the Times were totally losing their minds, James Bennett published a piece in the Times headed Why We Published the Tom Carton Arpet. He wrote, We published Carton's argument in part because we are committed to Times readers to provide a debate on important questions like this. It would undermine the integrity and independence of the New York Times if we only published views that editors like me agreed with. And it would betray what I think of as our fundamental purpose, not to tell you what to think, but to help you think for yourself. Wow, that is so true. Well done, James. 
finished up by saying, To me, debating influential ideas openly rather than letting them go unchallenged is far more likely to help society reach the right answers. To his credit, the publisher of the New York Times, Mr. Salzberger, backed his opinion editor. Now, you have to understand that at this time, Twitter did not represent mainstream views. It mostly represented the radical left. But even though it didn't speak for the majority of people, a lot of the media had gotten used to taking their news off Twitter, as well as taking how the people on Twitter, the Twitterati, felt about something as actually being what the majority of people actually felt. How people really felt was more accurately reported in a survey conducted by a relatively new organisation called Morning Consult. It started operating in 2013, and soon after, its information, gathered in a very high-tech, sophisticated way, was being used by President Obama to discuss his Affordable Care Act. So this is no right-wing conservative arm. This is a body whose techniques were of interest to the whole American community. Their survey of the American response to Senator Cotton's tweet about sending in the military to stop the rioting and looting, not the protesting, as the woke would have you believe, for the period 31 May to 1 June, showed that 58% of voters, including 37% of black voters, were fully in support of the military being brought in to suppress the rioters. But socialists hate individuals. They're the sort of people who think for themselves, and they might disagree with the party line. For the woke people, it's the party line, right or wrong. So the Twitter people went nuts. Ellie Mistel on 3 June posted, If he had written, stop the N, asterisk, 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 E-R-S, would you have published that? Will Stencil posted, Where does this principle end? Would the Times publish an op-ed explaining the policy rationale for genocide? Which as far as I can tell, with the deep anti-Semitism that infects the left is probably what they think was the best thing the Jews have ever done, head towards extinction. I haven't done with anti-Semitism of the left yet on this Senator Cotton story, as you'll soon see. Kylie Moshier posted this sarcastic remark. We're going to publish this op-ed entitled Mein Kampf by an up-and-coming politician so that our readers can be shown the counter-argument they so desperately need. Now, in the feeding frenzy that was going on, and given that the woke do what the party line tells them to do, Carl's tweet was potentially a good one. Even though she didn't mean it in a good way, I'm not saying that Senator Cotton is a fascist, as the left like to say the Russians didn't have a word for Nazis, so they always called the Nazis fascists. When people write stuff like Hitler did about the Jews... Isn't it actually better that it gets out there? Wouldn't it have been better if the world had looked at what he was saying and said that this guy should never be made leader of a country? Clearly, Mr. Bennett's article about why it was important to have the Senator Cotton Post published hadn't put out any of the fires, which were still blast furnace hot. The next step was taken to have a Zoom conference with staff which would hopefully defuse the crisis. Sitting in on the conference with James Bennett was the Times publisher, Mr. Salzberger, and its editor-in-chief, Dean Bacay. Now, just a little while ago, I quoted the line from that Billy Ocean song, When the going gets tough, the tough get going. 
I thought that meant like the first responders to the September 11 attack on the Twin Towers, when civilians caught up in that said while they were fleeing from the burning buildings to safety, the first responders were running toward the danger. That's what I thought the words to Billy Ocean songs meant. But it turns out that those words can have two meanings. In this Zoom conference, Mr. A.G. Salzberger, the Times publisher, Dean Baquet, the executive editor, and James Bennett, head of opinion editorial comments, clearly all decided that discretion was the better part of valour and that running from the burning building, metaphorically speaking, was now their best strategy for survival. In his Zoom meeting, James Bennett said he hadn't read the Senator Cotton opinion piece before it was published. Really? This was obviously going to be a highly controversial opinion piece. Approval had had to be obtained before the Times would go with the piece, so James Bennett was talking out of his ass when he said that. Mr Salzberger, who in the morning had defended the Cotton piece, now said that the piece was contemptuous and should never have been published. Surprising what can happen when you reread something. Dean Baquet, the executive editor, said he was impressed and proud of the solidarity the Times staffers had shown one another. Presumably, this didn't include Bennett or Rubenstein, I'll come to him in a moment, in mercilessly attacking the piece and any staff member involved with it. Salzberger said in a Slack post to Times employees, given that this is not the first lapse, the opinion department will also be taking several initial steps to reduce the likelihood of something like this happening again. Later on Thursday night, Mr Bennett posted on the Times app for staff that this vile article by Senator Cotton got past the high editorial goalposts that the Times normally keeps due to a rushed editorial process. The opinion piece didn't meet the Times standard. This was the first of a series of elaborate and shameful lies about how the article came to be published, including offering up a human sacrifice to the woke folk. Seven editors, from junior editors like Adam Rubenstein to the most senior editors, had diligently worked on the piece before it was approved for publication. As I've told you, I detailed the process in part 20 of this series. Now a whole long narrative emerged about this most junior of editors and how he had by himself bungled the whole process which led to an article that the Times would never have published, actually being published. The whole shabby cover-up appeared in an article in the Times on 4 June, saying the op-ed was edited by Adam Rubenstein. According to staff members in the editorial department, several of them said they had not been aware of the article before it was published. It was lucky that this most junior editor was a Jew, so the injustice didn't matter. I mean, look what the Jews are doing to the poor Palestinians. So Rubenstein was a natural outlet for woke anti-Semitic prejudice. His name was leaked by his own colleagues to his own paper to cover their butts in the face of the mob violence that was happening inside the Times and out. Rubenstein was asked by Times journalists for his comments, but as they knew, as an employee of the Times, he was forbidden to comment. Inevitably, the tweets soon descended into anti-Semitic slurs. 
The pylon of Rubenstein continued for days and not one of the other six editors who had thoroughly vetted the cotton piece spoke up to admit that they were also involved and that this publication was well considered and carefully vetted. Worse still, Rubenstein's name was constantly posted in Times articles about what had happened. Lie piled on lie at the Times about the article, its contents and how it came to be published. Soon an editor's note continuing the lie and to appeal to the woke folk was attached at the top of the Cotton article. After publication, this essay met strong criticism from many readers and many Times colleagues, prompting editors to review the piece and the editing process. Based on that review, we have concluded that the essay fell short of our standards and should not have been published. The editor's note then identified a few phrases that it claimed weren't well enough substantiated. Beyond those factual questions, the tone of the essay in places is needlessly harsh and falls short of the thoughtful approach that advances useful debate. Editors should have offered suggestions to address these problems. The headline, which was written by the Times, not Senator Carton, was incendiary and should not have been used. And finally, we failed to offer appropriate additional content, either in the text or the presentation, that could have helped readers place Senator Cotton's views within a larger framework of debate. By the evening of that fateful 4 June 2020, James Bennett, the head of the opinion section of the New York Times, no longer worked at the Times. Jim Dow, another editor who finally came out and admitted that he'd overseen the publication of the cotton piece, was moved to another department. Barry Weiss, apparently a Nazi Jew, interesting combination, lasted until 14 July and resigned with a resignation letter that I'll look at in the next program because it's worth it. Six months later, the poor Jew Rubenstein left the Times. So, listeners, what do you learn from this? In left-wing papers like the New York Times that had employed and promoted all the way to the top, well, nearly, the next generation of young woke journalists, armed with their Marxist training at school and the universities, which stood them in good stead, they were primed to shut down people who dared to disagree with the party line. Not even any discussion of alternative views was desirable. The fact that nearly 60% of American voters agreed with Senator Cotton wanting to send the troops in to put an end to the rioting and looting, and they thought he was being too soft with his approach, and 37% of black Americans agreed. If the Twitterati were against you, you either had to shut up or you were shut down. After this shocking experience, the New York Times was now only going to post the views of the woke folk as the only narrative on this and all other issues. The majority of Americans were, from now on, going to be silenced. The Times was no longer publishing without fear or favour. Even the owner of the paper, A.G. Salzberger, was cowed into submission. The readers of the Times weren't going to be told the truth. They were going to be told the party line. 60 Minutes journalist Wesley Lowry, that rare breed of animal, a black journalist with the New York Times, published an article called A Reckoning Over Objectivity, led by black journalists in the Times. He gave this take on what had happened. What's different in this moment is that the editors of our country's most esteemed outlets no longer hold a monopoly on publishing power. 
It was a rare case of accountability. Individual reporters now have followings of our own on social media platforms, granting us the ability to speak directly to the public. It is then no coincidence that after decades of pleading with management, black journalists are now making demands on Twitter. But Wesley had missed the big point. Thousands and thousands of his woke white colleagues had used their large social media voice, which is what they were required to have developed by Mr. Salzberger, and now they could tell the New York Times what stories it could tell and what stories it couldn't tell, and anything that didn't fit the party line was completely out. Barry Weiss will explain exactly what that means in the next program. This was a crucial time for public debate to be entirely taken over by the woke folk. This was going to have consequences, and sooner rather than later. The voice of six out of ten Americans had just been silenced. The great American newspaper, The Times, was no longer going to tell you what the majority of Americans thought. But your Unger Sagan, in her book Bad News, said at the point that America had just reached, it was not Carton who was most harmed by the Times' capitulation to its staff, but rather to the public sphere and its guardians, the journalists, whose job it is to have the humility to submit to a multifaceted, fluctuating, self-contradictory, and always evolving cornucopia of information in the pursuit of fairness and truth. These values are crucial not just to journalism, but to democracy and to freedom. Alexander Solzhenitsyn had told the Harvard graduation class of 8 June 1978, to its horror, the press has become the greatest power within the Western countries, more powerful than the legislative power, the executive, and the judiciary. And one would then like to ask, by what law has it been elected, and to whom is it responsible? In the Communist East, a journalist is, frankly, appointed as a state official. But who has granted Western journalists their power? For how long a time? And with what prerogatives? He saw what Bhatia Unger Sagan spoke about, but 40 years before. Senator Cotton was the last Republican official to appear in the opinion section of the New York Times for a long time, and the last supporter of Donald Trump. Now the election was six months away. What the Times was continually telling its readers was the most important election of our lifetimes. The readers of the New York Times weren't going to see a single opinion piece that would argue for something that the woke folk considered offensive, which meant anything they didn't agree with. The barriers against doing that were insurmountable. The new rules for the opinion section required every single op-ed editor to approve every single op-ed piece. Anyone thick-headed enough to present something that didn't completely fall into the bizarro world of the woke folk was wasting their time, pushing for an article that, even if it was controversial to start with, would end up as being mildly controversial by the time the woke folk had cut it back, if they allowed it to go forward, which was unlikely. We're coming up to the time of the presidential election. A candidate that won't face interviewers, Joe Biden, the brilliant journalism of Australia's Miranda Devine at the New York Post and her shocking story of the corruption that makes up the DNA of the Biden family with Hunter Biden's laptop from hell, which was a story totally buried before the election and many months after. 
But there was one great hope to emerge out of all of this. The perfect world. Had it arrived? Would we all soon be living in the socialist utopia? There were clear signs that that was about to happen. Marxism teaches us that the state will not be abolished, it will just wither away. And that was what we saw happen during the George Floyd riots in the democratic-controlled state and city of Portland, Oregon in particular, a group which called itself the Pacific Northwest Youth Liberation Front announced that protesters wanted to establish the Chinook Land Autonomous Territory, or CLAT. You wish these woke folk had come up with something better. In downtown Portland, the Chinook people include several indigenous groups native to the Pacific Northwest. The Pacific Northwest Youth Liberation Front defined itself as a decentralized network of autonomous youth collectives dedicated to direct action towards total liberation. Makeshift plywood barriers were erected, spray-painted with inspiring messages of the march to their personal paradise, such as Abolish pigs and prisons! Black liberation now! Stolen land! And racism chokes us all! Plus, black trans lives matter! Democrat Mayor Ted Wheeler said of the biggest immediate concern was the violence federal officers brought to our streets in recent days and the life-threatening tactics his agents use. We do not need or want their help. It was certainly a vision of what the future may hold in store for us if we're not very careful. Now it's the time to talk about Barry Weiss, a Nazi Jewess, according to her friends. I'm sorry. I meant her enemies. Well, time for that in the next program. Thanks for listening into this program, CYKIAE. If you missed it, you can catch up with it as a podcast on my CYKIAE, Spotify, Apple, Google, and many other podcast sites. Just look at my program details on Cairns FM 89.1 for clickable links. I'm Paul. Don't miss my next program because you're going to love it. I want to thank my ghostwriter, without whom this program would definitely not have been possible, the Holy Spirit. Maybe you could catch up with me at my church, the Gafcon Northern Hope Anglican Church at the Cairns and District Junior Estedford Hall, 67 Greenslopes Street, Edge Hill, some Sunday at 9am. If you liked this program, you should definitely listen in to my other explosive program, The Danger Zone, also available as a podcast on those same sites. Search Danger Zone, bracket, DZ, close brackets.